From its start, America was literally awash in drink. The average colonial Virginian adult drank about a gallon of hard cider per day. Children drank only slightly more. <laughs> and by the 1820s, liquor flowed so plentifully in the US that it was cheaper than tea. So that Americans would ever agree to relinquish their booze was as improbable as it was astonishing. And yet we did. And our speaker is here to offer his fascinating explanation of why we did it, what life under prohibition was like, and how such an unprecedented degree of government interference in the private lives of Americans changed the country forever. Dan Okrent is the author, most recently, of Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition, winner of the, in this case, rather ironically titled, American Historical Association J. Al Albert J. Beveridge Award. I, I, <laughs> I promise I'm not making this up. It's, the, uh, it's awarded every year for the year's best book of American history. And that's his fifth book. Previous works have included a number of things, but one of the ones that caught my eye was Great Fortune, the Epic of Rockefeller Center, which was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in history in 2004. Along with his output as a writer, Mr. Okrent spent many years in book, magazine, and newspaper publishing. This includes stints as editor-in-chief of general books at Harcourt Brace, managing editor of Life magazine, and he was the first ever public editor of the New York Times. You may also recognize his face or voice from the turns he has taken on the big and small screens. He was a featured commentator on two Ken Burns PBS series, Baseball, and most recently Prohibition, which basically he was also the, uh, the, the mind behind, as well as just the on-screen presence. And he's appeared as an actor in two feature films, The Hoax and Woody Allen's Sweet and Low Down. So please join me in providing a warm VHS welcome to Dan Okrent, who will speak to us about Last Call, The Rise and Fall of Prohibition. Thank you, Paul, and thank you all for coming out tonight. Uh, it's really a true honor for me to be here. I know that everybody who gives a speech says it's an honor to be here. Uh, but to be in Richmond, the home of uh, Virginia's Dabney, um, whom many of you of a certain age, my age or older, recall as the great editor of the Times-Dispatch, uh, <clears throat> Dabney was also the author of a, a really wonderful and essential book about prohibition called Dry Messiah, which was a biography of Bishop James Cannon, a very important figure in the prohibition story, um, whom I'll be speaking about tonight. Um, he was a, 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 an interesting character, very important in the life of the political life of Virginia in the first uh, 40 years of, of the last century. Um, but as it was said by one of his closest friends, nearly everybody who knew him in his public role failed to recognize that he had any human qualities, whatever. <laughs> um, I didn't, it wasn't my idea to begin with an advertisement for my book, uh, but I'll, I'll take it. Uh, the, the, the reason why I would have wanted to put my, the cover of the book first is to tell you what I really wanted to call this book. I wanted to call it, How the Hell Did That Happen? <laughs> How is it that a freedom-loving people uh, would install not just in the law, but in the Constitution, in the organic law of the nation, would install in the organic law of the nation 
a proscription that made it impossible to buy a glass of beer legally for 14 years in this country. Uh, this, in the Constitution, it had the same stature as any of the other amendments of the original articles, the same stature as freedom of press, freedom of religion, um, the, the equal protection under the law. And as I think we all know, the Constitution as a document, whatever, whether you're an originalist or not, you do recognize, we all recognize, the Constitution really is a limitation on government power. And only two uh, clauses, only, in, only two items in the Constitution uh, are the, the, the uh, rights of individuals limited. The 13th Amendment said you can't own slaves, and the 18th Amendment said you couldn't get a glass of beer. And the notion that these two things were equal, I think, tells us what an extraordinary and unlikely chapter in our history this was. So how did it happen? Why did it happen? How the hell did that happen? Uh, Paul already mentioned uh, about the, the quantity of cider drinking in Virginia, a fact I wish I had had that I could have included in the book that will get in the next edition. What I can tell you that in 1830, which depending on your perspective was either the peak or the nadir of drinking in America, um, more, more, uh, the average per, um, per capita drinking then was higher than it's ever been uh, in American history. The average American over 15 years of age drank seven and a half gallons of, of pure alcohol a year, which is the equivalent of 90 fifths of 80 proof liquor, 1.8 bottles per week for everyone. And if you consider that a lot of people weren't drinking at all, those who were drinking were truly, <laughs> truly drinking. George Washington, uh, he actually uh, gave uh, a, a, uh, a daily ration to every member of the Continental Army of four ounces of rum every day. Uh, that stayed in, in the Army daily ration until the 1830s when General Lewis Cass got out of it. Uh, alcohol was something that was used in every aspect of American life. Um, the historian William Rohrabaugh wrote about how if you won an election, you would celebrate with alcohol. If you lost, you would mourn it with alcohol. If you had a wedding, you had, an al you had alcohol. Funerals, raising barns, tearing barns down. It was there, Rohrabaugh said. He said, Americans drank in that era from the crack of dawn to the crack of dawn. <laughs> and let me tell you, this was not because of its fine structure and its long tannins and its wonderful nose. Uh, people drank to get drunk. That was really the only reason. Uh, and the people who did the drinking overwhelmingly were men. Uh, and they did it in an institution that we know mostly from Hollywood's version, the saloon. The saloon was an all-male place, both in the cities uh, and on the frontier, uh, usually tawdry, filthy, and it was a place where men would go to escape from the things that people escape from. And they would find that a, a, an easy or at least efficient escape was into the bottle of liquor. Uh, it was a horrible, horrible social problem in the first half of the 19th century. It, uh, <clears throat> the men who would, go, who would drink in the, in the local saloon would drink so much that they couldn't make it to work the next day. They would lose their jobs. Uh, they would lose their money gambling there. They would, mortgage, they would uh, spend the mortgage money. They would come home and they would mistreat their wives and children. They brought home something that was known in that era as the syphilis of the innocent, which is to say that there were brothels attached to many saloons, and the men would contract venereal diseases, come home, and then their wives would, would be infected as well. Women in the middle of the 19th century had virtually no rights in this country. And not only did they not yet have the right to vote, divorce virt virtually didn't exist. The right of property was something that, really, that belonged overwhelmingly to men. Uh, and there was nothing that women could do about this except they could rise and protest. And the real beginning of the prohibition movement is in the 1840s and 1850s, and it's a movement of women. And it's a movement of women that remained 
deeply connected um, to, pro to the prohibition movement for the ensuing 75 years in the form of the women's suffrage movement. The two were siblings. They were born around the same time, around the same issue, which was drunkenness, and I'll elaborate on that in a second, uh, and they entered the Constitution within a year of each other in 1919-1920. Susan B. Anthony began her career in public life as a temperance worker. She rose to speak at a meeting of the New York State Sons of Temperance in 1852, I believe it was, and she was told by the chairman of the meeting that the, the sisters were here to listen, not to speak. And this happened to her again the following year in New York City, and she decided at that point that if she was going to be able to do something about this terrible plague that was destroying American family life and home life, she would have to, would, she would have to give women political power. And she and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, also came out of the temperance movement, devoted their lives to getting the vote for women for this specific reason, and they were the engine that drove it. <clears throat> this is Hillsborough, Ohio, 1873, and the beginning of the first mass prohibition, or as it was known, temperance movement. Uh, the, on Christmas Eve, 1873, a woman named Eliza Thompson, who was the daughter of a former governor of Ohio, the wife of a judge, uh, she led the women of Hillsborough, which was in southwestern Ohio, out of the Presbyterian church to go to pray at each place that sold liquor in town. They prayed in the snow, they sat outside, and they prayed for the saloon owners and for the drugstore operators who also were, were selling liquor. They prayed for their souls. And this was like nothing that anybody had seen in American public life before, women putting themselves physically on the line to change something. Within days, 11 of the 14 places in Hillsborough stopped selling liquor. They closed down. And the movement spread from there like the proverbial wildfire throughout the upper Midwest and into upstate New York. It was called the Crusade, and it was a fever that gripped the country and brought this, the notion of the possibility of getting rid of alcohol uh, in, in, into the forefront of the American consciousness. <clears throat> the women... Uh, the, the, the efforts of, of women to, to, to bring an end to prohibition was one of the three causes, the three uh, 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 vectors that brought about prohibition. The other two, similarly, you would think, well, what does that have to do with liquor? We'll get to them momentarily. In the latter half of the 19th century, America went from being a whiskey-drinking country to a beer-drinking country. The immigration of the Germans and the Irish <clears throat> in the 1840s and 1850s uh, made beer the, the primary uh, alcohol served in, served in the saloons. Uh, the primary vehicle for it was the, the creation of a system whereby the saloons were, though locally owned, they were controlled by the brewing companies. It was a, called a Tide House, T-I-E-D, where the agreement was made between the saloon owner and one of the big brewing companies you will sell only my beer, and in exchange, I will give you everything you need. I'll give you your glassware, I'll give you cutlery, I'll give you the, the, the picture of Custer's last stand on the, uh, on the, uh, to go ab above the bar, and you will sell as much of my beer, whatever my company is, as you, as you possibly can. Uh, one of the, the interesting uh, um, aspects of, uh, or one of the interesting things on offer in the saloon of, of this period was that thing which we're told there is no such thing as, which is to say the free lunch. Uh, around the 1880s, the free lunch became a staple in American saloons. What did the lunch consist of? Saltines, sausages, sardines, anything, clams, anything that was salty. Uh, and what did, why would they give away such food in a, in, a, in a bar? The 19th century humorist George Ade said that the sardines in the saloons of that era were more than fish. They were silent partners. <laughs> so 
<clears throat> the people who had the, the most to lose from the possibility of prohibition were obviously the brewers and the distillers, and particularly this man, Adolphus Bush. I don't think I need to explain uh, who he was. Um, but he took it upon himself to lead the beer industry, which was a very, very big industry in the 19th century, uh, to fight against the possibility of any limitation on alcohol sale and alcohol consumption in this country. What did that mean to him? Stopping women from getting the right to vote. And from 1890 until around 1910, the Anheuser-Busch Company and the other large beer companies working in, in concert uh, with Bush did whatever they could to keep women from getting the vote across the country. They did it sometimes very openly, sometimes it was very underhanded, uh, but it was something that they absolutely would not relent. The consequence of this, of course, is that when women finally got the vote, they voted against the breweries. They had almost guaranteed their fate. They were sealing their fate when they were fighting the women. A lot of people say, well, how, why did the vote, women's vote matter if the, if the 19th Amendment, giving the the vote to women doesn't come into play until after the 18th Amendment. Well, one thing to remember is that 25 states had uh, women's suffrage before the, the constitutional change, so that in each of these states, when the issue came up, uh, women would be the ones who would vote the, the brewers uh, out of business. Um, the other thing that kept the brewers that, 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 that hurt them in their effectiveness was their unwillingness to make common cause with the distillers. The brewers and the distillers should have been, if they had their common interest uh, in mind, they should have been working together. Instead, they worked against each other. The distillers pointed out the political diabolic, the diabolical nature of the brewers' uh, political activities. The brewers maintained that what they were selling, beer, was really fine. It was this awful uh, uh, hard liquor that is really a problem in American life. They went so far, uh, the brewers, in attacking the, the distillers, uh, to argue that what they produced was liquid bread. And our advertisements, one can see from the late 19th and early 20th century, some of them reproduced in the book, in which you actually see uh, 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 paintings, drawings of women holding their babies and feeding them beer as if it were a health beverage. So what are the two other movements um, besides the, 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 the women's suffrage movement that led, led us to prohibition? Well, one of them, uh, I should say first that they were brought together under the, the aegis of an organization totally forgotten today, but one of the most important political organizations in American history, the Anti-Saloon League, born in Ohio in 1893, uh, and de described uh, by its founders uh, as a pressure group. It's the first time that we've, heard that, that, that we've heard that phrase in American history, that they were dedicated to bringing political retribution. That was the term of Howard Hyde Russell, the, the uh, Presbyterian minister, the, I'm sorry, the Baptist minister who founded it, bringing political retribution against our enemies, and our enemies were those <clears throat> who were fostering the liquor trade and the beer trade by allowing it to stay in business. Uh, they put together a coalition unlike any other coalition, I believe, in American history. It stretched on the right from the Ku Klux Klan, which saw prohibition as a way to battle the political influence of the immigrants who were coming into the cities of the Northeast and were populating Congress. The Democratic machines out of Boston Philadelphia, Chicago, largely uh, supported by Italian and Irish immigrants, and to the KKK with their incredibly strong anti-immigrant feeling in, in this period, they felt that by fighting liquor they were fighting against these, these political machines. Moving 
toward the left uh, in this coalition that the Anti-Saloon League uh, put together. Um, the next group uh, in, in the middle or a little bit toward the left would be the Progressive Party of the U.S. The Progressive Party had 18 members of Congress when Pro the Prohibition Amendment was voted on and 17 of them voted for it. The progressives believed that getting rid of liquor was a way to improve the lot, the lot of, the, of the urban masses, the, the, the huddled masses uh, yearning to breathe free uh, in, in the, in the uh, ghettos of the large cities. Um, they felt that, that if they could take liquor away from them that their lives would be improved. And it stretched all the way in the far left to the industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies, the most radical uh, labor organization in American history. They were for pro prohibition as well because they believed that liquor was a tool being used by the plutocratic capitalist classes to keep the working man enslaved and to keep him down. And the Anti-Saloon League brought these groups together around one issue and sticking only to one issue. They didn't care if you were running for office what you thought about foreign policy, what you thought about the, the gold standard, what you thought about labor laws. If you were with them on this issue, they supported you. The one organization in American politics today that has followed this pattern extremely effectively is the National Rifle Association. One issue alone, and that enables them to bring together a coalition of otherwise very unlike-minded political figures. So the second movement, um, besides the women's suffrage movement, was the movement toward an income tax. What does the income tax have to do with prohibition? Well, until 1913 and the adoption of the 16th Amendment authorizing the income tax and the subsequent passage of the income tax uh, by Congress and its enactment into law, until then as much as 40% of all federal revenue came from the liquor tax, the alcohol tax, the tax stamps on the bottle. And the prohibitionists realized that unless there was a replacement for this enormous amount of money coming into the federal treasury, there was no way they could ever have prohibition. So they very surreptitiously supported the populists who were bringing about the income tax. And it wasn't until 1913 when the income tax was enacted that the Anti-Saloon League said to uh, its allies, now we can get a constitutional amendment. There are dollars that are going to the federal treasury. They don't need the liquor money any longer. The third was World War I. World War I arrives, and as I think we all know, uh, anything German became uh, viewed not just with suspicion but with, with hatred. What were the last names of the brewers? Anheuser, Busch, Paps, Schlitz, Schmitz, Ortlieb, and on and on and on, Rupert's. Every one of them was German, and it became very easy for the Anti-Saloon League and the other prohibitionists the people who are fighting for prohibition, to point to these people and say, these people are working for the Kaiser. They are working against the interests of the American, uh, the American war effort. They are sapping the, the morals of our fighting men. They are consuming huge quantities of grain that could be used to bake bread for the starving Belgians. And this is the thing that finally put it over the top. So you have these three things, women's suffrage, the income tax, and World War I that made it impossible to buy that glass of beer that I mentioned earlier. A few more words about the uh, Anti-Saloon League. Uh, and largely, uh, this person, uh, this very unprepossessing fellow is Wayne B. Wheeler, also forgotten uh, by, <coughs> uh, by today. Uh, during the 19 late 1910s and 1920s, he was on the front page of every newspaper in America. He was the Grover Norquist or the Carl Rove. I guess Rove's not so successful anymore. I should drop his name from this talk. Um, <laughs> of, of the... Uh, of the, of, of the Anti-Saloon League, and of, of the Prohibition Movement. He was the one who realized that you don't need a, pro, a, a majority to win a constitutional amendment. You, what you need is 
minorities that can be motivated behind your issue. So in any given legislative district, in any uh, uh, congressional election, if you have one candidate who's got 47% of the vote and the other candidate's got 43% of the vote, and you have that other 10% of the vote and you can deliver it one way or the other, you can win. And he did this with phenomenal success so that in 1916, Congress flipped from being very divided on this issue to being a, a, a body that was <clears throat> more than two-thirds uh, in each house willing to support uh, prohibition. Now, the anti-Saloon League and Wheeler, they came out of Ohio, they came out of the Republican, uh, uh, Republican Party. Uh, it was an organization that consisting overwhelmingly uh, led by Methodist and Baptist clergy, but they had no influence of the, in the Democratic Party. And just as the NRA today will support Democrats who are with them on that issue, on their issue, because they want to have influence in each caucus in, uh, uh, in Congress, the uh, ASL turned to this man. And this is James Cannon, Bishop James Cannon, of Virginia. Uh, he was the delegate to the Democrats, an incredibly powerful figure. He's the one that I mentioned earlier uh, whom Dabney wrote his biography of. He was a bishop of the Methodist Episcopal Church South. Um, he pretty much was, as he wasn't in the Democratic Party, but he had a great deal of control over the Demo Democratic Party in Virginia. Uh, he was an odd guy. In addition to being um, this fellow who, uh, whom I described earlier as somebody who, you know, missing all human qualities, one of his best friends was H.L. Mencken, probably the greatest advocate for drinking in America. Uh, Mencken said, said of Can Cannon that, that Cannon's merest wink could make a president of the United States leap like a bullfrog. His political power was that strong. It's an interesting trope because the New York world said a few years earlier, and maybe Mencken stole this from him, about, about Wayne B. Wheeler, they said he's the legislative bully in front of whom the United States Senate sits up and begs. He had that kind of control. Uh, Cannon uh, was the key figure later on in his life in 1928 in the anti-Catholic campaign against uh, Al Smith when he ran uh, for president. It was Cannon who said that the Catholic Church was the mother of ignorance, superstition, intolerance, and sin. Uh, he was a ferocious guy who, when he was in New York, stayed in a hotel in the Yiddish theater district because he loved Yiddish Jewish dill pickles. Um, a neighbor of his said he had this, uh, his sense of humor could be lightly balanced on the back of a gnat. <laughs> but he was, he was effective. In any case, finally, in 1919, the Constitutional Amendment is approved by the 36 states required. Uh, not all the states approved it. Connecticut and Rhode Island never uh, ratified the amendment. Uh, New Jersey didn't ratify it until three years after it was in effect, but of course once the 36th state, the, the three-quarters of states had done it, it was in the Constitution. It's important to remember or to know that the, the, neither the 18th Amendment nor the Volstead Act, the Enforcement Act that followed, made it against the law to drink. It made it against the law to transport, manufacture, or sell alcoholic beverages, intoxicating beverages, in the United States. And the reason why they didn't make it against the law to, to drink is Wayne Wheeler realized that if it, if it had been a crime to have a drink, you would never get a drinker to be able to testify against his supplier. So we'll leave them aside and try to go after the suppliers instead. Really very uh, clever uh, analysis. The other thing that they put into the Volstead Act, the enforcement legislation, is that any alcohol that you owned and that was on your premises effective January 16, 1920, you could keep and you could continue to drink in your home with your friends and with your family. Now, whom did this benefit? Those who could afford to stockpile it and those who had large enough place to keep it. So 
many people realized that this was really, it was a kind of a class-based issue. The wealthy always were able to get their alcohol. It was much harder for poorer people to do it, or to hold, at least to get it legally. There was a gentleman named Walter Parker, who was a civic leader in, um, in New Orleans. Uh, you can imagine how popular prohibition was in New Orleans. <laughs> Uh, he vowed. He, he vowed on the day that it went into effect uh, that he would have a bottle of, 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 of wine every year, and he doubled the size of his wine cellar. He put in 5,000 bottles, and he invited his friends over, and he had that bottle of wine uh, throughout the next 13 years. Uh, Mary Pickford's mother in um, uh, in Los Angeles. Mary Pickford's mother was also her her ma her business manager. She bought the entire contents of a Beverly Hills liquor store and put it in the basement of her house. Uh, so those who had it were very popular. This was a song of the era that indicated <laughs> why they were popular. So it comes into effect, and the people who brought it into effect, those who were campaigning most assiduously and most vigorously for it, they really thought that with the enactment, the ratification of the amendment, and the enactment of the Volstead Act, that the battle was over. We learned, said Dietz, Mickett, Dietz Pickett, who was the chairman of the Methodist Church's uh, uh, Board of Temperance and Morals, we learned to drink milk as never before. Our tables were loaded with fresh vegetables and fruits, and the young people became taller and healthier and more vigorous. Well, he said that in 1921, and by 1922, I think he would have changed his mind, because it quickly became clear that anybody who wanted intoxicating beverages would be able to find them, would be able to get them. The, 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 the Desire was there, and it would be fulfilled. In fact, the tone had been set by three exceptions that were put into the Volstead Act, uh, put in very consciously for, for political reasons. The first one was to enable the farmer to preserve fruit. That was the phrase that, that, that Wayne Wheeler used when he, when he introduced this and when he persuaded uh, Congress to adapt it, that you would have to let the farm wife, was the way he put it, be able to conserve fruit. What that meant was hard cider. Uh, and because he needed the votes from the rural districts, it was essential that he be able to provide the rural districts with, with what they had known since the beginning of the Republic. I don't know about you, but when I was in grade school and I heard about, about Johnny Appleseed going through the Ohio Valley, you know, I thought Macintosh, Golden Delicious, no, those were all cider apples. And the barrel of cider, the jug of cider was at the door of nearly every farmhouse in, uh, in, in the nation. And out in the fields, there would be a jug that would be kept distant in the fields so that while working in the fields, the workers could take their time off uh, to have, have their alcohol. Well, the consequence of allowing the preservation of fruit enabled people to preserve all sorts of fruit, like grapes. <laughs> and I'm going to take just a second to... <clears throat> this is water, honestly. Uh, in 1919, in the uh, Napa Valley in California, uh, the, the grape growers were tearing out, out their vines. They were putting in apricots and plum trees and other fruit because they thought their, their world was over. Uh, during the 1910s, the decade leading up to that time, the average price at the railhead for California wine grapes was $9.50 a ton. Well, in 1921, the second harvest after Prohibition was in effect, what had been $9.50 a ton, the price went up to $82 a ton. Three years later, in 1924, $375 a ton. This is up from $9. This is an increase of more than 4,000%. You could go into the, into the San Francisco rail yards in October 
uh, in September and October. And people would bu be buying and selling a carload of, of grapes. Five people would own it before it had left the, the, the yard. They were all heading east. They were heading east to place it to all the, the cities of the Northeast, particularly that had large Southern European immigrant populations. The Pennsylvania Railroad doubled the size of the New Jersey freight yards in Jersey City between 1922 and 1925 simply to handle the grape tra traffic that came in every fall. Um, this is Ninth Avenue, underneath the Ninth Avenue L in New York. This is called Patty's Market. Uh, it was an outdoor uh, fruit and vegetable market that stretched for about 10 blocks from the low 30s up into the, up into the 40s. And during most of the year, it sold all sorts of produce. But in October, it sold only grapes. Um, uh, a familiar name, uh, Cesare Mondavi, was the son of, uh, was, was a, uh, uh, a worker in the iron country of northern Minnesota, the town actually of Virginia, uh, Minnesota, and he sent his young son Robert out to California in 1926, said bring back the grapes that we can make our own wine from. Uh, under the regulations put into place, a family was allowed to make 200 gallons of wine for their own personal use a year. Now think about that. That's a big family, or it's a family with a lot of friends. It was said that in the Italian neighborhoods of the Northeast in October that you could walk a block in such a neighborhood and get drunk simply by inhaling. The, the, the smell of the, the grape crush and of the fermentation was that strong. The second use, the second exception of the three exceptions, uh, was the medicinal use of alcohol. Uh, in The Great Gatsby, when uh, Daisy Buchanan meets Gatsby, she comes home and she's gushing about him to her husband, to Tom, says he owned some drugstores. He built them up himself. Well, Tom knew immediately that what that meant is that Gatsby was a bootlegger. Uh, here's how it worked. Well, first, a little history. The American Medical Association in 1917, recognizing the direction that the country was going toward prohibition, uh, its House of Delegates passed a unanimous resolution that read that the use of alcohol in therapeutics has no scientific value. By 1922, two years into prohibition, they began to change their minds a bit. It was, the medical use was provided for uh, in the Volstead Act. And in a survey that the AMA conducted, they called it a plebiscite of their entire membership in 1922, they asked America's physicians whether they really thought there was a therapeutic value for alcohol, and they came back with 27 different medical conditions they thought that should be treated with alcohol. These range from cancer and diabetes to dyspepsia, snake bite, and my very favorite, old age. <laughs> the, the, the resolution they had passed in 1917 that said the use of alcohol in therapeutics has no scientific value, suddenly that had no scientific value. And in fact, they then passed a resolution that they sent to Congress complaining that any regulation of the medicinal alcohol business would be considered a serious interference with the practice of medicine. Um, here's how it worked. You go to your doctor and you would uh, uh, be able to get a prescription every 10 days. This is a physician's register that, that they were required to keep um, <clears throat> that indicated, this is a, a physician in, in, Pro in Providence, Rhode Island, who got it, on what date, and for what ailment. And I don't know whether it's visible, but everybody, except for a couple of people at the bottom, everybody in Providence had an ailment called debility. <laughs> and they would show up every 10 days for their debility uh, prescription, <laughs> which was a bottle of whiskey. Um, a doctor in Detroit wrote a prescription that was my very favorite one. It read, uh, the, the instructions, take three ounces every hour for stimulant until stimulated. <laughs> uh, 
the ingenuity that came out of this was absolutely extraordinary. There was a man named George Remus, who was himself uh, actually trained as a, both a lawyer and a pharmacist, who moved from Chicago to, to Cincinnati because Cincinnati was within 200 miles of 90% of the bonded alcohol in the United States, and he bought it all up. And he created something called the Kentucky Drug Company. And then, clever guy that he was, he had his own men hijack his own trucks to take the legal liquor out of the drug company trucks and put it into the speakeasy trade. Um, here in Boston, the S.S. Pierce Company, I think that a lot of people know about the S.S. Pierce was grocers to the, you know, to the, to the uh, New England aristocracy. This is the price list for physicians and dentists. And I should say, uh, veterinarians were allowed to do this as well, but that was not a, <laughs> so if your horse really wanted some Jim Beam, you could probably get it. Um, but looking inside, this is for medical purposes, you know, the medical, it's all brand names. Three varieties of rum, two of brandy, two varieties of scotch, medicinal champagne. <laughs> and this is fairly early uh, uh, in prohibition. In the beginning, you would, you would take your prescription down to the pharmacy, and they would give you a, you know, a brown vial, pharmaceutical vial. But by 1924, it was brand names uh, with, the, with the labels on them. Um, the Walgreen family, a guy named Charles Walgreen, he had 20 drugstores in Chicago in 1920. and the end of that decade, he had 525 drugstores. The family has always said that it was the milkshake. <laughs> it wasn't the milkshake. Uh, and in fact, his son, Charles Jr., acknowledged that the biggest worry that they had back then was a fire in any of their pharmacies because they knew if the firemen came in, they would take all the liquor in the storeroom out with them. The third uh, exception was for sacramental purposes. It should be said that prohibition was overwhelmingly a Protestant movement. Not the Episcopalians or the Lutherans, but all the other main Protestant denominations in the US were behind prohibition. Uh, Jews and Catholics overwhelmingly opposed it uh, for a variety of religious reasons and for cultural reasons uh, uh, as well. Um, this man figured out what to do about that. This is Georges Delatour. He was the founder of Beaulieu Vineyard, still one of the leading vineyards in the Napa Valley. He was a French immigrant who had been working in the wine business. And in around 1910, in, in Rutherford, California, uh, he began to sell altar wines, communion wines, to the Catholic Church. You would have to get uh, uh, what was called an ecclesiastical approbation from the archbishop that the, all the parishes within that diocese could buy directly from him. And he was, very, he was a, a, a very prominent figure, a very important man in the, in, uh, in the Catholic community in Northern uh, California. And he had sales offices by 1914, 15, in 10 cities across the country selling uh, uh, sacramental wine. In 1920, he got the first legal permit in California. California 1A was uh, <clears throat> his particular permit. Within a year, in early 1921, he was publishing a brochure that offered communion wines in 10 different grape varietals, including Riesling, Tokay, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, <laughs> and Chablis. His market was the clergy. The clergy would buy it in the barrel, it would be delivered to the, to the, parish, to the parish house, and then it would be put in bottles. Now, here's one for the service, and here's the rest for the congregation. Uh, he, to, to sell to the clergy, he, he built a guest house on his property in, in Rutherford, uh, a beautiful, beautiful home underneath the sycamores overlooking the vines, and he actually put an altar on the terrace so that somebody could sample 
a, a visiting priest could sample the, the altar wines that were being offered. And if you, in this setting, if, if that didn't bring you religious ecstasy, I don't know what possibly could. In 1929, Winston Churchill visited Rutherford. Uh, you can imagine what Winston Churchill thought about prohibition. Actually, he called it an insult to the entire history of mankind. Um, but he came, he came to, to the U.S. with his son Randolph, came across Canada, then came down the, Cal, the, Cal, the west coast, the Pacific coast. Uh, he was very worried about how he was going to get his daily cognac and his wine, and uh, he uh, appointed Randolph to be the one who was in his early 20s uh, to find it for him. They never had any problem, and they realized they would never have any problem when they crossed over from Va Vancouver and came into the port of Seattle, uh, and, they were, and he was a member of the, 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 uh, the British cabinet at the time um, in the colonial office, and they brought uh, the, the head of the customs office in Seattle brought him in to welcome this important Englishman and served him liquor for dinner. So if the customs officers were doing that, they knew they were okay. Well, anyway, they get to Rutherford, and today, still, the Del Tour family owns the house and the guest book of all the vigni uh, visiting dignitaries, the politicians, the Hollywood figures, the, the athletes, Winston Churchill. They're all, they've all written their notes in, in the guest book. 1929, after two days there, Churchill wrote, Christ has come to the aid of Bacchus in a most wonderful way. <laughs> now, among Jews, it was a little bit different. You didn't have the hierarchy that the Catholic Church had. You didn't have an archbishop or an archrabbi who could say, uh, who's to say who was a rabbi? There was no formal uh, ordination uh, in, in American uh, Judaism at that time, as there really isn't, isn't today. Uh, Jews were allowed 10 gallons a year per, per adult per family, and they got it by going to the rabbi of their particular congregation, and you would get a certificate that would enable you to take it to your local uh, uh, cellar. This is on the Lower East Side of New York. Um, congregation Talmud Torah in the Boyle Heights section of Los Angeles had 180 members on January 1st, 1920. On January 1st, 1921, it had 1,000 members. <laughs> Rabbi Benjamin Gardner, uh, when he was arrested for the third time, said he couldn't help it. His congregation was clamoring, he said, quote, for wine, wine, and more wine. Uh, in fact, what he didn't say, that he had been in the wholesaling business as well and had two other congregations uh, that he was serving. And off the coast in Alameda, one, one rabbi moved 5,000 gall gallons in a nine-month period. His synagogue was a room that seated 12 people. The list was the, the, the names that he had to submit to the Prohibition Bureau of who he was giving the, 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 the uh, uh, permits to was populated by names taken from the obituary pages of the Oakland newspaper. Um, this led to constant press stories and what would have been called in my Jewish family as not good for the Jews. This was very bad for the Jews because you would read about rabbis getting arrested constantly and who were you know, running these, these incredible rackets. And it led to a, a huge doctrinal warfare between the immigrant Orthodox Jewish rabbis and the established uh, Reformed Jewish rabbis. The Reformed rabbis said they were so embarrassed by this. They said, you know, we don't need to have wine for our Sabbath services. We can have unfermented grape juice. The Orthodox rabbis said, don't tell us how to run our religion, and please don't take this business away from us. And, and, and it, it created a great deal of, of conflict. But even the Orthodox eventually backed down uh, at that point when, in 1925, in the New York Times, rabbis, a couple rabbis who were arrested were named Patrick Houlihan and James McGuire. <laughs> there, were, there, there were many, many... Those were the legal ways of getting... Alcoholic beverage. So, if those were the legal ways, imagine what the illegal ways were like. Um, along the excuse me, 
along the East Coast, uh, if, from Cape Cod to Virginia Beach, uh, beginning in 19, late 1921 until about 1926, at any given time, you, you could not be anywhere along that coastline and not see these large ships sitting outside the three-mile limit, later the 12-mile limit. They were, this was called rum row, and they were called mother ships. They didn't move. They, anything that had a hull that could float and that could contain things would just be at anchor permanently there, and then rum runners, as they would call, were called, would bring the alcohol up from the Bahamas, or they would bring it down from the French islands of St. Pierre and Miquelon, or from Newfoundland, and they would drop it off at these places. Then the inland runners would go out and get the alcohol and spread it around uh, uh, the, the vicinity. In, in New York, uh, Variety, the show business newspaper, published weekly the, 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 uh, um, the sale price, prices, what you would have to pay for somebody who was bringing it in from one of these, one of these boats. In the Philadelphia area, the primary uh, means of, of um, uh, illegal alcohol, uh, the spread of illegal alcohol, was industrial alcohol converted to potable use. Now, the P Delaware Valley, because of the concentration of the, the chemical industry there, people were making alcohol, and the Volstead Act allowed for the legal uh, manufacture of alcohol for non-beverage uh, uh, um, purposes. You needed alcohol to make photographic film, to make explosives, to make the lead, the graphite and, and, and lead pencils, to make the felt and hats. Uh, there were all sorts of make aftershave. So they had to set up a permitting system where the government would come to your, you were uh, a chemical manufacturer, come to your uh, uh, factory and you'd say, you know, I've got 10,000 gallons here and it's for aftershave. And then you would get a permit to uh, le have it leave uh, your factory, but before uh, the, the, the fellow from the federal government gave, gave you the permit, he would add a, a, a denaturant to the, uh, to the alcohol, uh, some, an emetic or something that smelled horrible or tasted horrible, or in some cases something poisonous, and then he would leave knowing that this was not going into the alcohol trade. And as soon as he was out the door, they'd, br they'd bring in their own chemist who would then renature the alcohol. <laughs> and then once renatured, they would then color it if they were selling something that they were passing off as scotch or as bourbon. Uh, they would color it uh, if it was they would color it with prune juice. That was one common one. They would flavor it. If it was scotch, they would flavor it with creosote. They would then pour it into the bottles that had counterfeit labels on them of all the, the brand names that were becoming well known uh, d during the period. Um, it was everywhere liquor, particularly anywhere near the coast and anywhere where there was a large immigrant, which is to say Catholic population. In some places of the country, the more you were moved toward the center of the country, the, the harder it was to get. So you had to use some of your own ingenuity, some of your own energy. You could usually buy something that was really kind of rotten, that was, a, you know, that was made by uh, <coughs> the, the equivalent of moonshiners. Just a, as an aside about moonshiners, there was a very large operation uh, outside of Denver um, because they were not near a coast that was manufacturing alcohol for the illegal market. And the easiest way to be caught, uh, and if you were not for some reason able to bribe the local officials or the federal agents, the, was from the smell. The smell of a distillery is very, very pronounced. This guy dealt with that by surrounding his distillery with the carcasses of dead animals. <laughs> and that was the smell that people encountered instead. Um, but if you couldn't get it, where you were, you would travel for it. And that began the liquor tourism industry. Uh, this is the first, this is one of the, 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 the planes of the first regularly scheduled international airline to operate from U.S. Uh, uh, um, uh, uh, port of embarkation. 
uh, this is Aero Marine Airways. It was based in Miami. It flew to Bimini, it flew to Nassau, and it flew to Havana. And it created the Caribbean tourism industry. Nassau was a town, this dusty town where you know, people were, were selling sponges and, and tortoise shells until the British liquor industry started to sell, send in tens of thousands of gallons to liquor for the rum runners to move up the coast. And it was, an all, you know, it was the all-night Havana the, that we uh, know about from the period came about uh, th you know, through the, uh, the same agencies. The, the notion that you could leave where you are, go somewhere, and have a really good time drinking. In Havana, uh, one very famous bar, Sloppy Joe's, it's mentioned in Hemingway, uh, their slogan, sign over the door, says, where the wet begins. On the Vermont border, uh, just over uh, uh, the border into, into the eastern townships of Quebec. Uh, these tiny towns that had populations of, of, in, in the three figures, suddenly they had huge resort hotels that were built right on the border. You could take a train to Richland, Vermont, and a 75-cent cab drive to Abercorn, Quebec, and you could be there and drink uh, legally as much as you wanted. In the cities, the saloons became speakeasies. Um, you had a saloon that was operating selling liquor, male only, and then on, on January 16, 1920, it's still there, and you still have a market around. Well, you have to you know, serve the market, and you found a way to do it. We're all familiar from the Hollywood version of the guy with the peephole and the password. That was over in a city like New York by 1922. They were operating openly because the corruption was so, uh, was so pronounced. The, 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 a federal prohibition agent made the modern-day equivalent of $25,000 a year, and every time there was an opening for that job, there were hundreds of applicants because it was an opportunity to, to, correct, to collect graft on a scale uh, never before or since witnessed in American history. Everybody involved in law enforcement was able to do it. The big shock about the speakeasies were men and women drinking together. This had never happened before. The wealthy sometimes drank together in public in, in hotel dining rooms, uh, but for most Americans it was, it was unknown. Alec Wilder, the uh, songwriter, he said when he encountered a pretty girl in a speakeasy was the most beautiful girl in the world. It was something they just couldn't imagine. It was a radical change in American social life. If you have men and women drinking together, you, you don't really want to have them bellying up the bar together, so that started table service in bars. And if you have table service, you have to have food and not just this, the free lunch that you were getting before. If you have men and women together, inevitably music and dancing. And this is this, the creation of the American nightclub and the cabaret directly owing to prohibition. The spread of jazz, the Charleston, all because of prohibition, uh, because it changes social habits in so many ways. One of the most surprising ways to me was learning um, what did they do about uh, 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 restrooms for the women. You know, these places had been male only, and you can imagine what those bathrooms were like. Well, suddenly you have women there. Where, well, see, there's a broom closet over there, or there's a you know space underneath the, the staircase or behind the bar, and that was turned into the powder room. It was a toilet, a sink, and a mirror, and that was the the advent of another really important element of American modern culture. Um, it was in the cities, it was out in the open. These people do not look like they're having a, you know, a secretive time, worried that somebody's going to come in. Uh, this is at the 21 Club in New York in 1929. The owners of the 21 Club had owned a place on 49th Street. On New Year's Eve, they moved uh, to 21 West 52nd Street, and they operated there, and they operated openly for the four remaining years of Prohibition. It's where all the politicians went to get their, to get their, their drink. Uh, and this was, was, was common... Uh, throughout, throughout the country. 
I think that the best example of this was described by Malcolm Bingay, the editor of the Detroit Free Press, in a memoir he published in the, the 1940s, looking back on the period, he said, it was absolutely impossible to get a drink in Detroit during Prohibition unless you walked at least 10 feet and told the busy bartender what you wanted in a voice loud enough for him to hear you above the uproar. <laughs> well, finally it comes to it an end, and there were a lot of things that led to the end. The corruption was truly horrifying. Uh, law enforcement wasn't able to keep up with it. Um, the state of Michigan, which was already had a large population, had three federal judges, and suddenly there were these thousands of federal criminal cases that were coming into the courts. They simply couldn't handle it. Um, the, the, uh, the, the visibility of crime, it was everywhere. The, the, those versions of it that we've seen from Hollywood are exaggerated to a degree, and they don't get the details right, but the, the, the wide range of mobster on mobster, the, in these enormous criminal syndicates that were born because of prohibition. The National Crime Syndicate is the direct result of prohibition. There, were, there was organized crime before 1920 in almost every city, and usually it was a tenderloin district, a red light district, where there was prostitution and gambling and maybe drugs and all-night bars controlled by a local mob. But there was no reason for them to go beyond that territory. They were doing fine. Suddenly you have huge quantities of physical goods that need to be moved from one place to another, and you need allies elsewhere. So the mobsters from five major eastern cities get together in Atlantic City in 1929 and create the National Syndicate. They meet again in, in 1932 in Chicago from 21 cities, and they divide up territories, and they set prices, and they create their own judicial commission. What we saw in The Godfather was actually real. Uh, and this is another legacy of prohibition uh, <clears throat> that we can be extremely unthankful for. Um, Pauline Sabin, like Wayne B. Wheeler, somebody utterly forgotten today, uh, really one of my favorite characters from the research that I did. She was the daughter of a, uh, <clears throat> um, a secretary, uh, 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 a cabinet secretary from the Roosevelt and the first Roosevelt and Taft administrations. Uh, she was the, an heiress to the Morton Salt fortune. She was one of New York's leading uh, society hostesses. She was the founder of the Women's National Republican Club, the first woman member of the Republican National Committee. She had been a supporter of prohibition, and then she saw the corruption, and she saw the crime, and she saw how her two sons couldn't take law seriously. What, what, what does it mean to say that something's against the law if we're seeing the law being broken on a daily basis? So she turned against it, and she gave a speech in 1929, created an organization called the Women's Organization for National Prohibition Reform, and it became respectable because of her stature for women to be opposed to prohibition. So just as women had brought prohibition in, they could usher it out. And she had 1.3 million members had signed up to be part of her movement by 1930, 1931. She and her New York Society friends would travel throughout the country. She went to something like 35 states. On one particular trip in 1930, uh, they went to Charleston, Atlanta, and Birmingham. And if you look at the society pages in each one of these cities, the fact that these glamorous women from New York were coming there and having luncheons, the story was on the society page and it was on the front page as well. And suddenly for the society ladies, for the Junior League in Atlanta, it was respectable to do this. And they brought up a huge, huge uh, groundswell of opposition uh, to prohibition. <clears throat> but the primary reason for its coming to the end was the Depression. And as taxes played an issue coming in, taxes played very large, <clears throat> the, the issue of taxes plays a very large issue in Prohibition's uh, end. Um, 1929, the market crashes, the, the Depression follows. Uh, by 1930, 
the, the, toward the end of 1930, federal income tax collections are down 33% from what they had been before, from the booming 20s. The, uh, there are no capital gains taxes collected at all. Nobody has a capital gain between 1929 and 1933. The government is running on fumes. There's not enough money to perform its basic functions, much less to do the things, the spending that they might want to do to help the country out of the Depression. And somebody says, where are we going to get the money to solve this? Well, you remember those liquor stamps on every bottle? And this, more than anything else, brought it rushing back in. The prohibition, the, the repeal movement was funded by Pierre Dupont and his brothers, uh, overwhelmingly. They actually believed, that <laughs> shows how naive they were, that if you could bring back the liquor tax, they could get rid of the income tax, which they really despised. And our letters that I quote in the book, in which they write to each other, saying that if each working man is paying a penny for every glass of beer for taxes, then we won't pay taxes any longer. Um, in 1932, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, uh, who had been a dry, uh, and Eleanor remained a dry, uh, he campaigned for a change in the Volstead Act to at least bring back beer, and he said it would bring back $250 million in the first year, and in fact it was more than that. 9% of all federal revenue in 1934 came from the return of the alcohol taxes. Uh, Walter Parker, the fellow in New Orleans I mentioned before, who said he was going to have a, a bottle of wine every day throughout Prohibition, well, he kept at that, and then on December 6, 1933, the day after repeal, he wrote a letter to his friend Pierre Dupont and said, I've stopped drinking. <laughs> um, this is New York on December 6, 1933. These people are lined up to get liquor licenses, to get the licenses to sell. Uh, it was also... It must be remembered, a huge jobs program. Before Prohibition, <coughs> the alcohol industry in its two forms, both uh, beer and, and distilling, in its primar primary forms, was the fifth largest industry in America in invested capital and sixth largest in employment. And then suddenly, all these people were thrown out of work. Now we're in, 19, in 1933, unemployment is at 25 26%. To suddenly bring back an industry of this size meant not only bringing back the people who worked for the breweries, and for the distillers, but the truck drivers, and the ice makers, and the cork ma manufacturers, and the people who made barrels. It, was, it, was, it put a lot of people back to work very, very speedily. Um, I want to get back to James Cannon, and then I'm going to wind up uh, momentarily, and we can perhaps have some questions. Uh, Cannon was brought down, you'll be shocked to learn, for a man of, 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 of the cloth, by financial and romantic misbehavior. <laughs> Uh, he, it came to uh, uh, two huge scandals uh, involving sexual uh, uh, <clears throat> misbehavior and, and, and also stock kiting. And in, in 1935, Alva Johnston, uh, writing about what brought an end to prohibition, um, he said, few would deny a medal to Bishop Cannon for sharing his disrepute with prohibition. Uh, the, the, so many, many of the people who had been campaigning so strongly for it were discredited for a variety of reasons. Uh, the last thing that public statement that Cannon ever made, well, the, before I get to the last one, he did say at one point that when he was challenged on the, the influence of religion in, the gover in, in government in Virginia and his influence, <clears throat> he told the Times-Dispatch, I do not remember that I ever attempted to use my influence with the legislature except on measures pertaining to education, prohibition, gambling, vice, Sabbath observance, moving pictures, and child labor. His last public statement was a letter to the Times-Dispatch in the 1940s complaining of the cancellation of Prince Valiant from the comic pages. <laughs> so what happened afterward? Um, well, the, to me, the great irony of Prohibition is it became suddenly a lot harder to get a drink 
than it had been when it was illegal. Because when it was illegal, it didn't exist. And if you were able to bribe the local cop, which you were, of course, able to do, you could keep your bar open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and serve it to anybody you wanted. And if a 14-year-old wanted to get a belt at 5 in the morning on a Sunday, who was going to stop you from selling it to them? In comes the regime, the post-repeal the post regime of regulation, and suddenly people have licenses that are extremely valuable and that they don't dare lose. And all the, 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 the whole complex of laws ranging from you know, closing hours, age limits, uh, Sunday blue laws, not being near a church, not, not being a school, near, near a hospital, this really put a limitation on the amount of alcohol that people were drinking. We didn't get back to pre-prohibition drinking levels until around 1972 uh, because it really, to a degree, it, it, it put a lid on it. So for the last word, I'm going to turn to somebody that I often talk about a lot, and I left out of this talk, and I apologize for it because he's a fascinating guy. This is the young Sam Bronfman. I'm sure many of you recognize the name Seagram's. Canadian family, built one of the huge, one of the, the largest fortunes in, in, in North America, first by being a bootlegger and then by going straight in 1933 and building this enormous uh, worldwide distilling empire of Seagram's. Well, he, he was known as Mr. Sam to everybody. Late, late in Mr. Sam's life, <clears throat> late 60s, Fortune magazine decided to do a uh, profile of him to tell the story of how he became this, this great titan of industry and of wealth. And they sent two reporters, as Fortune did in those days, to spend three weeks with him. They went with him everywhere. And they would keep asking him, so, Mr. Sam, about prohibition, what, oh, we had nothing, everything we did was legal, we didn't, which it was all a lie, but uh, this was the position that he was going to hold. And this goes on until the very last day, they're with him in his house uh, in Terrytown, New York, uh, above the Hudson, and he's taking a swim in the pool, and the two reporters are sitting in uh, two chairs by the pool uh, underneath an umbrella. He gets out of the pool, he towels himself off, he puts on a sports ship, sports shirt, he walks over to them and sits down, and he knows this is the last day of the interview, and he said, you know, about this prohibition thing that you've been asking me about, there's something I need to tell you. You people were thirsty. Thank you very much. <laughs> and I'm thirsty too, but if anybody has a question, please put a hand up, and we've got a couple of people with microphones moving through the crowd. And I'm happy to answer anything you may have. There's somebody in the middle. You're hearing a lot of similarities between uh, or from prohibition and what we hear today on uh, the war on drugs and uh, decriminalization of marijuana. Are there any some policy findings from prohibition that you might suggest to today's policymakers? Uh, well, a few things. First, um, I said uh, 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 to Paul and Nelson and, 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 and Graham before we came down here, one of the first three questions will be about drug laws today. Uh, so you guys are two questions ahead of most audiences uh, on that one. Yeah, it, it, it's unavoidable. Uh, before I went out to promote my book when it was published two years ago. I had no opinion on the drug laws. I happened to have never liked drugs myself. I was very upset when my now grown children were clearly using marijuana recreationally when they were in high school. Uh, but it's inescapable that what we've done is exactly the same thing that we did back, <clears throat> back then. We have created a, a regime of enforcement that doesn't enforce uh, that enriches criminal syndica syndicates, that creates enormous amount of, of uh, violence, uh, that uh, um, challenges the meaning of, of, of law, uh, that deprives government of tax revenue. You know, the two measures that just passed in, 
in uh, Washington and Colorado, they were both uh, phrased not just as measures to legalize marijuana, it was to tax, regulate, and legalize uh, recreational marijuana. Uh, it, I gave a talk to the ATF, <coughs> to the top management of ATF in 2011, and in the question period, one of them got up and said, you know, we're spending all this money and all this effort, and do you think it makes any sense? And I said, you know, I hate to say this, but I don't think so. And he said, neither do we. Uh, it's a, the war on drugs has gone on longer than any two wars in American history, and it's just not working. So, I, I, as I say, I, I, I wish this weren't the case, but I think that one of the, the, if there's one primary lesson of prohibition, it's the inability of governments or societies to legislate against human appetites. Uh, every society since the birth of the species has tried to get rid of prohibition, of uh, 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 prostitution. Not one has ever succeeded. If somebody wants it and somebody's going to provide it, there will be a way to do it, and I'm afraid that's the case with drugs as well. Uh, I don't know my history well enough. I don't know what the population of the United States was when prohibition was passed. About 115 million. That much, yeah. because it's, you know, it was 120 million before the Second World War. Yeah. But so how did it get passed? Because in history, uh, since the distribution of wealth was so unequal then, mm -hmm. and certainly before, the male who didn't earn much was a heavy drinker. You have that in Europe, and you had it here. Mm -hmm. So how in God's name did political uh, by by the extremely legal democratic manipulation of the democratic system um, the, what do you mean? by the anti uh, anti saloon league uh, by being able to identify in 1914 a prohibition amendment was introduced into Congress and Wayne Wheeler took note of everybody who voted against it. And it passed, I mean, it had a slight majority, but you needed a two-thirds majority. And then he built a campaign toward 1916 to beat every one of these people, to def defeat them. Now, he didn't get every one of them. He didn't get the ones in the cities, but in many places throughout the country, he did. And it wasn't because he had a majority of support, but he had a block of people. He had a group of people he could deliver. We're going to vote against you because you are not against liquor. And he got a two-thirds majority. Uh, it was a, really an extraordinary piece of, of, of lobbying and of leg legislative uh, s uh, strategy and leadership. I mean, I, I think Wheeler was a brilliant man. I think he was basically a good man, too. I, I think that uh, he truly believed that alcohol was a bad thing. He came to be corrupted by power to some degree, but uh, it, it was, you know, th there were noble motivations. But was it publicized? I mean, certainly the man in the street, I suppose he didn't have any power and he probably didn't. I'm sorry, I'm losing you. I, I, I'm sorry. Uh, was it publicized what they were doing? Because certainly the man in the street who probably had no no uh, power. everybody knew about it. It was everybody? very yes, ab absolutely. By 1916, when it looks like it's going to happen, it's a major, major issue uh, throughout the country. In certain parts of the country, it was in la largely in the large cities with large immigrant populations, it was horrifying. On the other hand, what were they going to do to stop it? Uh, in the words of one commentator at the time. While the prohibitionists were busy trying to get their law in, the drinkers were too busy drinking, which is to say th that if you have something, you don't fight to preserve it as much as you fight to change something you don't like. And I think this is true throughout American history, and there are 100 examples of it. We have one more question, because we do have a bar waiting for us outside. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you had said that earlier, we wouldn't have taken these questions. I don't have a 
I don't have a question, but a comment. Wheeler must not have liked my great-grandfather very much. He owned a, a whiskey distillery here in Richmond. Mm -hmm. And my, you talked about the, um, the Hollywood projection of how it, it was with the feds coming in, and my grandmother remembers that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The story goes that the feds came to inspect, and if there was too much being made, they would just open the faucets and kill the fish and ducks in the lake down below. But when, um, when the feds came in after Prohibition and they told my great-grandfather that he would have to stop producing, but he could still produce for them, <laughs> and he refused. Mm -hmm. And my grandmother remembers them coming in with axes and literally chopping open all the... All of the barrels. Well, from what I can tell from my research, there were many more honest distillers than there were honest prohibition agents. And I guess your grandfather was among them. Thank what? you very much. Oh.